In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is Heritage Sunday, a day to celebrate the lives and ministry of seven parishioners who have been members of Trinity for 75 years or more, Martha Campbell, Lawson Deloney, Pete Maris, Ed Pinnock Jr., Francis Mitchell Ross, J.D. Simpson, and Bell Spatz. And of eight parishioners who have enriched our lives on earth for 90 years or more, Ted Bailey, Catherine Bost, Joanne Cooner, Mary Fine, Adolphine George, Catherine Heppenstall, Bill Pumphrey, and Nell Stevens, and of three parishioners who have done both, 90 years of life on earth and 75 years of ministry at Trinity, Margaret Gamble, Gordon Wittenberg, and Betty Terry, and of one organist and choirmaster, Charles Rigsby, long and well-loved here and throughout the church in Arkansas. Trinity's heritage began with our founding on October the 19th, 1884, by Bishop Pierce. That start, which is a birthday of sorts, reminds me of something that Karl Barth said about people. The day we're born, our lives are all present and future with no past. After that, the past gets longer and the future shorter by the day. He wasn't counting heaven, which is on a different clock. On our clock, Trinity has 134 years of past, which is a nice length, and we pray an even longer future. One of our honorees, Betty Terry, owns a past reaching back to the 1920s, and a week ago last Wednesday, October the 17th, her birthday, her great-granddaughter and namesake was born, Madeline Elizabeth Bournet Williams, whose future stretches forward to the 22nd century easily. In the heritage of Trinity Cathedral, that's a powerful one-two punch. One woman who would have been honored today, Jane Wilson, instead was buried from here on Monday. In Jane's funeral, our heritage of faith wrapped her death in transcendent and hopeful beauty. Heritage is treasure. Consider Charlie at the organ. And Charlie at the age of 22, I think, Dean Higgins saw energy and talent and hired him on the spot, bringing a musical life to this cathedral the likes of which is seldom heard, not only but especially with children. The musical and spiritual seeds that Charlie planted in lives going back to 40 years and more ago continue to flower here, even as new seeds are being sown by Victoria, who is one of Charlie's many protégés. Heritage can be baggage, too, of course. Our southern heritage is a glaring example. We southern states were on the wrong side in the Civil War, 
and again in the struggle after that for civil rights for black folk. From that bad history, we can't hide. Shelby Foote, in a low moment in the 60s, said that he had become ashamed to be a Southerner when for most of his life he said the South was the one thing that he really loved. Good Lord, he said, when I think of what we could have been, the heritage we perverted. And then he began to things, list the things that he had always loved about the South, the misspent courage, the hardcore independence, the way a rich man always had to call a poor man mister, which brings us back to treasure. As for me, even with the baggage, I'd rather be from here than anywhere. And I'm speaking both of the South and of Trinity Cathedral. It's time to quote Faulkner about the power of the past. Everyone has heard this. He said, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. The line is from his novel Requiem for a Nun, which means that Faulkner's best-known line is from his least-read novel. We invoke that line when we want to make the point that actions in the past determine present possibilities. And that's true of actions both bad and good, baggage and treasure. The past is sticky that way. When I was a young priest, a wise old lady up in Crawford County said to me, show me a rooftop, I'll show you a heartbreak. And when I arrived here, an old priest, five years ago, I quoted her and I added, show me a steeple and I'll show you the same. Trinity has lived its share of troubles and heartaches going all the way back to 1884. We accept the troubles and the heartaches with the treasure. And forever, they're a part of who we are. There's no other way to be a church or a human being. Faulkner is cited about the power of, is cited about the power of the past. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead is often quoted on the importance of the present. He said, the present is the sacred moment. I picture a surfer riding the front of a big wave in the space underneath the curl, creating movement and direction. The wave is our past. The power to create movement and direction in the present is our freedom. The analogy only takes us a little way to the truth because unlike surfers, in the present, we change the volume and the power and the movement of the wave, our heritage. We're making it right now. Jesus' heritage was rich with prophets like Isaiah and kings like David and priests like Aaron. And they shaped the ways he understood his ministry and how people saw him. Are you the king, they'd ask. And the answer was yes, but in a whole new way. People also saw him as a priest. Priests were go-betweens for humanity and God. If you sinned or needed prayers, you paid a visit to one and he would represent you and offer up a pigeon or a lamb on your behalf. And then he would turn around and he would speak for God to you and go in peace, he'd say, your sins are forgiven. 
In the gospel, we see Jesus doing priestly work for Bartimaeus, a blind beggar who sees him and shouts, Have mercy on me, son of David. Some baggage in Bartimaeus's heritage had cost him his eyesight, and he wants it back. And Jesus gives it to him. Go in peace. Your faith has made, your, made you well. Bartimaeus asked, and that's all it took. In Christ, the burden of his past was lifted. Christ is priest in a whole new way. He's able for all time to save those who approach God through him, says the epistle to the Hebrews. You approach God through Christ directly, not through the cathedral clergy. And that's good, because we are a weak and intermittent connection, like the electric switches on our quirky elevator over there. Christ's connection is strong, secure. Once I saw my father in, sick in the hospital. He had been visiting Washington, D.C., and he got real sick real fast. And I'd gone up there because we thought that he might die. He was very weak, but he was lucid. A young big city doctor came in who was a little puffed up with his own importance. He hadn't been at doctoring long enough, I guess, to learn humility yet. He patted my father on the arm. I hear you've got connections, he said, pointing up. Ha ha, not meaning it. <clears throat> Dad gave it some thought. <clears throat> and then, meaning it, he replied, I do, but not any that you don't have, too, or anyone. Christ is the connection, the go-between for humanity and God. Dad recovered from that illness, but before we all left Washington, my mother gathered my sisters and me to tell us something. She said, I wanted you to know that I'm seeing some changes in your father, and I'm afraid that Alzheimer's disease is probably the cause. And it was. And that was the beginning of my father's 10-year Job experience. Job was a good and faithful man whose happy life had, had imploded in catastrophe. And our biblical heritage is a crucial story. Like Adam and Eve, Job is universal. He stands for you and me. Potentially, his catastrophes are ours. In the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, and in the agony of Matthew Shepard and his family, and in the Yemen famine, there is Job. As we just heard in our reading, at the end of his story, Job's fortunes are restored. But this kind of happy ending isn't close to enough to make up for the pain that Job had endured. And it does nothing for the others who were killed or hurt in the devil's menu of catastrophes that Job and his household suffered and that recur, recur in human life. I've known that my whole life for as long as I can remember. Because as a young child, I knew Job and the priest who baptized me and who encouraged my father towards the priesthood. This priest's family and ours were close. And his daughter was about the same age that I was, and she was poisoned 
from eating paint chips from the window by her crib. Before it started, her life was ruined. For humans and for churches, our past accumulates the loss. It needs healing in the worst way. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, it cried. But how can the past be healed? In his little novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis envisions the answer from that other clock. He paints a scene in heaven's foothills. A guide gives the tour to a new arrival who on his way into those foothills had passed through a town that wasn't heavenly at all. Its ghostly inhabitants were lost in their conceits and their pet amusements. From what they know of heaven, which is as close to them as Pinnacle Mountain is to us, these dead don't approve of it at all. It doesn't deserve them, they know, and it won't satisfy their need. For ghosts like that, there may be no hope. But for everyone else, there is. And for the painful past, there is. The guide explains, and in doing so, he reverses William Faulkner's insight. The past isn't even past, as Faulkner said, but from the guide we find that the future isn't wholly future. The guide says, good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporary suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. And then we remember that we've seen this. Every spring, in our heritage of faith, we reenact it through Holy Week, leading up to Easter. Easter Sunday makes Bad Friday good retrospectively. And in that transcendent moment, the future of the universe is told. The Easter wave hits the heavenly shore, and instead of breaking on the sand, it builds strength, and it reverses course and comes roaring back through time.